morning, everyone. My name is Will. I am one of the pastors here at New Life. And uh, it's good to see you all if you're visiting with us. Thanks for joining us, um, giving us, and blessing us with yourselves and with your time. Uh, stick around if you're able to so we can meet you. We have a time of fellowship after the service in our fellowship hall. And just as a reminder, August is what we call our ministry break month, but in reality, it's our ministry preparation month as we seek to kick off our new ministry year in the month of September. So the leadership are, play, are praying, they're planning, we're thinking, and we're going to be training this coming Saturday. So we ask for your prayers, and what that means for the month of August is that we have the blessing of worshiping, worshiping with our children for the entire month of August for all church worship. And so children, New Life Kids, it's great to have you guys here. I pray that you can be blessed. You bless us. And so your presence here is something that I really cherish as your pastor. But with that said, we will continue along in our series in the book of Psalms. Let's look at Psalm 126. And why don't we just read that together? If you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 126, a very short and sweet and deep psalm. Psalm 126, six verses. This is God's words. I pray that you'll be blessed as I read this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And this is God's word. Please, please take your seats at this time. So we've been looking at various psalms in the book of Psalms, and we do this every summer as a way to sort of reset and recalibrate our souls, to find rest in the person and work of Jesus, to reflect on our mission, identity as people, as humanity, and also to reflect on who God is and this world that we are engaged in and called to be a witness and a disciple of Jesus Christ in. And so we're looking at Psalm 126, and even if you missed it from the reading of the scripture, Psalm 126 is a very honest and raw type of psalm, but it's very symmetrical and neatly written out. And the reason I say it's raw and honest is because it goes from the heights of joy to the depths of sorrow. And it's essentially telling us that's a picture of life. Before Jesus comes back, and I'm not sure if everyone is a believer here, and if you're not, thanks for joining us. If you're exploring Christianity or just kind of visited because you're going through something in life, maybe there's something we could talk about and we can engage in. But the picture of Christianity gives us an accurate picture of life because it says... You'll always weep, and you'll always rejoice. You'll always rejoice, and you'll always weep. There's no life, there's no philosophical system, worldview, religion that says you will always be happy 24-7 in this world. Unattainable, unrealistic. And so if you find in life that there are moments and you're happy, but also moments that you're sad, then welcome to the club. That's called humanity, and that's life. And Christianity, I believe, gives you the clearest and most honest picture of how to navigate the roller coaster of the ups and downs. And so there are two simple points to consider as we look at Psalm 126. In verses 1 to 3, we'll consider our dreams, the blessings that we've had, the joys of life. And then in the second half, verses 4 to 6, we'll consider the heartaches of life, our tears. So two points. First, we'll look at our dreams. And then secondly, let's consider 
our tears? How do we cry? Is there a gospel Christian way to grieve and to cry and to shed tears? And I think there is. So if you want to know what the Christian way to cry is, a gospel cross-centered way to cry, that's very different from every other worldview, every other system of belief, then you know, try to stick with me and then we could dialogue about that today. So let's look at verses 1 to 3 because it talks about our dreams, our joys. John Calvin, this one reformer, has once said this, most of Scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. And the reason he says that is because Psalms, perhaps more than any other book, captures the experience and the emotions of humanity. That's why it speaks for us. It articulates our emotions better than we can when we're stressed, angry, when we delight in things that we can't, when we sense a, a feeling of injustice in this world and all the brokenness that we see out there. So Scripture speaks to us, but the Psalms, perhaps more than any other book, speaks for us. And this psalm is a really great example of that. It shows us the range of emotions. It's a real picture of what life is like. It's a roller coaster of ups and downs, because at one moment, life is a dream, and then on a, on a dime, it switches, and the next moment, you're in a nightmare. And as I said already, this gives us sort of a balanced picture of what life is like in Psalm 126. And what I love about Christianity is the fact that more than any other thought life, system of living, Christianity, I believe, talks about life. And I love Christianity and what the Bible says because I think more than any other religion, it's very honest about life. You know, it's not just by you know, pie in the sky. It's, it's really honest about the frustrations and the brokenness of life. And implicitly, what this psalm teaches us before we look directly into dreams is this. It teaches us that a life of following Jesus is inevitably a life of both rejoicing and weeping. In other words, you can think about it this way. Psalm 126 in six verses gives us a roadmap of how to navigate your dreams and your joys but also a roadmap to how to navigate in the complexities of your heartache and your crying and your tears. And it implies this about Christians, whether it's you or not, this is what the gospel can do for us. It tells us that we can be our fullest humanity in the gospel of Jesus. Well, why is that? Because in the gospel, it allows us to rejoice even greater than anyone else, but it also allows us to be more empathetic, and cry even deeper than anyone else. And the reason is because if you live life in a gospel Christian worldview, then you'll discover that there are greater reasons to rejoice in life. You have heavenly blessings that are waiting for you. You have forgiveness of your sins. You have an existential identity and mission to pursue something for justice and mercy that gives you life and makes you feel important, and you have a place in this world. You have greater reasons to rejoice, but also in the gospel, it gives you deeper reasons to be empathetic. You know that there's sin, there's evil, there's injustice. You know that there's a, a brokenness in this world that causes you to be even more empathetic and heartbroken and shed tears that are even deeper. That's why this psalm will show us that there are greater reasons to rejoice, but deeper reasons to also be empathetic and to cry. And that's given to us in Christianity. Now, what's nice about this psalm is that it's broken up very neatly, and the first three verses are about rejoicing, and the last three verses, as I said, is about crying. But the good news about this is that even though mathematically it's equal, 
three verses rejoicing, three verses crying, is not theologically equal because the foundation and the end point is rejoicing. So even though there's three verses about rejoicing and three verses crying, it's not saying that it's half and half in this life. Christianity is by far the religion of joy, so that what dominates and permeates even our darkest moments is the fact that we can have a greater hope to know that our suffering will end, and that the baseline foundational reality of Christianity, the end game that bleeds back into our past but also our present, is decidedly, climactically one of joy. And that's what we're going to discover here. So the psalmist begins on joy. He begins with a dream, a high note. And you'll notice that what the psalmist is talking about is rejoicing about something in the past. God delivered them. So in verse 1, it said, He restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those in a dream. Verse 2, our mouth was filled with laughter. Verse 2, they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So he's thinking about the past, and he said it was such a great time, a vivid picture of blessing that it was like a dream. But it's a true dream, a historical reality, and he's reflecting about something in the past. This tells us that there's something about Christian discipleship that's important about imagining once again and remembering what God has done for you in the past, even in present difficulty and tears. In this context, in Psalm 126, we're not sure why he's actually, or what he's referencing when he talks about God restoring their fortunes. Some say God is talking about the return from the exile and restoring them back to the land of promise. Some say the language is similar to Job 42.10, in which there's a restoration of Job's losses and family and cattle. We're not really sure, but whether the circumstances either or neither of those, that's good news for you and me, because I think the psalmist leaves it especially open to saying whatever circumstance that the psalmist is thinking about in which God restored the fortunes, it could be applied to today. That's why it's left open. So either return from exile or return from poverty in Job, either way is left open because it means that we can enter into that story, we can apply it for today. That's the good news for us. And at that time, when the psalmist is contemplating this, he was saying, God and remembering that God has restored them. There is laughter, there's nostalgia, there's a blessing. It was a real memory. It was a memory that filled the heart of the psalmist. It filled his heart with laughter, his mouth with praise. It was the good old days. He remembers the good old days, but it was real. It wasn't just fantasy. And he's remembering this. And I think the point for today is to know that God has done some version of that in your life today. And there's something helpful in your walk for your present circumstances to think about how God has saved you in the past. Not just in your salvation, but how if you look back and look back in your memories, God was there. In other words, you can think about it this way. Part of what helps you to suffer well today is to remember God's blessing in the past. It may have been like a dream. It felt like really ecstatic. It was wonderful. And you can look back in your life and you can sort of redeem your memories because you could reinterpret your history from the lens of the gospel to say that God was there. He saw me. He carried me through. He saw when marriages were tough. He saw when I felt depressed. He saw me when I was lonely. He saw me when I had a difficult childhood. He sees you now when you have a difficult childhood. So God sees everything, and part of what the psalmist tells us is that we can imagine 
and go back and dream and remember that true historical reality because that reminds us of who God is and his character for us today. God did it before, and he's asking the psalmists to do it again. The psalmist is saying, you did this before, but please get me through it again one more time. Friends, have you ever had a time like this, a moment like this where it was seemed so perfect in your past, such a blessing, it felt like a dream, and today feels a lot like stress and difficulty and brokenness, but do you remember a time in the past where you're thinking, life was really good, maybe in college life, maybe as a child, maybe before kids, maybe as a single person? Spiritually, you felt good. Your career was going well. Education was going well. Your relationships and friendships were fun. You were able to eat, eat good foods. You are able to go to vacation. You're remembering the good times, and you remember it like a dream. If that's the case, then what the psalmist is telling us, hold on to those dreams because they're real. Hold on to those memories. Hold on to what God has done for you in the past because that could fuel your energy and your grace in the present. And so before we go to our second point, I want to talk a little bit about the discipline of imagination, because that's all over the Bible, and it's really about dreams. Dreams is really an expression of your imagination. And what I'm trying to say is this, according to one pastor who wrote a book on uh, a doctrine of Christ, but he talks about in one section of a chapter about the, Christian, the Christian's use of imagination. That imagination, friends, is not just for fantasies and fairy tales and for kids. Imagination is basic to your humanity. You think about it every day of your lives. Imagination is used when you're thinking, where did I put my keys? What will dinner be like later today? Will my wedding be like this? Will my children be like this when they grow up? Will the weather be okay when I go on vacation in a couple of weeks? What will school be like as we kick off the first week of school in a couple of weeks? Anytime you think about something real, you're invoking your imagination. So imagination is not just for children, it's for humans, and it's for Christians. Our dreams and imagination, in fact, the Bible will tell us, are necessary for you to know and to enjoy God, because you can't see God. And a lot of the Bible is painting an image and an imagination for you to understand the nature of God and how you live before God and what heaven will be like. That's why there's parables and there's metaphors. Heaven is like a banquet. It's using your imagination. Hell is like a place of lake of fire where you're gnashing your teeth. So we can't get away from dreaming in the first few verses because we can't get away from the practice of imagination. That's why Albert Einstein once said, imagination is more important than knowledge. It is used to image anything that is real but currently unseen. And one way to think about the Christian life, one way, not the only way, but a powerful way, is to believe the gospel means that you have your imagination taken captive and shaped by a new story. And that's why when you look back at your past and you dream about God's blessing and his grace and how he has reinterpreted your history because you thought he wasn't there, but you look back and you realize he was fully there, you're reimagining your life, but in truth and reality. Imagination is part and parcel to the Christian faith. That's why the Apostle Paul, what does he say in Colossians 3? Set your mind on things above. And so this point, which is a little bit abstract, is to say God was there for you in the past. We can remember those times like a dream. They were good. But use our imagination because it helps us to remember who God is 
and what he has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Hold on to these blessings and dreams. Remember them. Think about them. Because that's how we can begin to deal with our present tears and our sorrows and sacrifice. Because if you can remember God's promises and blessings of the past, then you can remember that God is still with you today. And this leads us secondly to tears. This is the heartache. So we went to the highs. Now we go to verses 4 to 6. It's the low. And the psalmist is saying, I remember my past like a dream. God restored my fortunes. And the psalmist in verse 4 says it again. Can you restore my fortunes now? But here's what's interesting about the restoration of fortunes. It says, restore fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. And here's what we can consider. In verses 4 to 6, what the psalmist gives to us are actually two ways, two metaphors of how God will restore your fortune. Two ways. The first one is what I just read. It's going to be like streams in the Negev. Now, what's the Negev? That literally means dry or parched land. It's like a desert. And it was the name given to the southernmost part of Judah. And basically, it's saying life is like a desert. It's dry. It's empty. You're scrambling for life. You're looking for vegetation. You need a drink of water. And it says sometimes the way that God restores your life is like streams in the Negev. In other words, there's a crashing flood. And it's so overwhelming that in one day's time, the next day you have grass and flowers that are blooming. And sometimes God does that for you in your life. It streams in Negev. You're in a desperate, desert-like experience. You're in a wilderness wandering. And God, in a moment, in his grace, can overflow your life with his grace and his mercy. And it feels like streams in the Negev. The next day, there seems to be deep transformation. There's grass and flowers that bloom in your life. That's one metaphor. He says sometimes he could do this, and the psalmist is asking about that. Restore fortunes like streams in the Negev. But when you look at the second metaphor, it's not just about crashing floods and instantaneous grass and flowers. The second metaphor is really the honest metaphor. I think it's actually the more common metaphor. The second metaphor about restor- <clears throat> restoration comes to us in verses 5 to 6. Let's read that together. It says, Those who sow in tears shall reap shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So the first one is overflowing waters in the desert, but verses, verses 5 to 6 is a farming metaphor. Any farmers in this room? Have you ever, maybe gardeners are the closest can you cause something to grow really quick? You know, I would imagine farming is really hard work. And that's the metaphor. It says most of life, even if you do the math of it, one verse about the streams, two verses about farming, it's saying most of life is sowing and farming in tears. That's going to be most of life on some level. That's the dominant metaphor for how God will restore you. It's not going to be this ecstatic 24-hour transformation, but probably a slow farming and sowing of your tears. Farmers plant and sow seeds. Tells us restoration for us, relationally with us and God, healing and mental illness, or hard issues on idolatry, is slow and hard work. This Old Testament scholar, Tremper Longman, says about this passage, seeds for the farmer back then cost the farmer everything, every hope and dream was encompassed in the farmer's seed because back then you can't control the weather just like today 
and you put all your money, all your hopes, your future sustenance and food and agricultural produce and your money in this seed. And for the farmer, when he plants a seed, he's planting his dreams. He's risk-taking. Everything he has for his family and about himself is planting in this seed. And he says sometimes life feels like that. You have your hopes and dreams, and you're planting it in your education or in marriage or in your children and things that are good, but maybe that are not supposed to be your savior. And the point is this, is that sometimes restoration is going to be slow and hard. But this is the hope, friends. It says there in verses 5 to 6, those who sow in tears will reap shouts of joy. Your life of tears can produce a life of joy. That's the difference between crying and grieving without Jesus and crying and grieving with Jesus. Because if you cry with Jesus, if you tear up with Christ, if you walk alongside of your Savior as he walks alongside of you in the heartaches of life, then it promises you at some point your tears will end and you'll shout with joy. See, now you're thinking, how does that work? What does that mean? Well, let me try to bring this out for you a little bit. Let's think about tears for a moment. You could do a whole Bible study series on tears. Now, I think we did this one year. Let's think about tears. What exactly are tears? Some say 98% water, 2% oil and salt. You know, absolutely right, but that's not the point of what the Bible is saying. Tears in the Bible are actually not some sort of chemical or element. Tears are a language. Tears are a communication. It's a way to communicate. It's It's an evidence of an experience that you're going through. They can speak louder than words. They can, be, they can speak stronger and more than words. They can express joy because you tear up when you give birth to a baby, get a promotion, get accepted into your grad school. There's a healing. Someone in your family is sick and they come out well. There's tears of relief. There's also tears of sadness, tears of thankfulness. Every emotion that you have as a human can be expressed very powerfully through tears. It's a language. It's a communication. In the same way that they sometimes say poetry can communicate the same truth more powerfully than prose, tears in some ways can communicate more powerfully and stronger than actual words. Isn't it true if you've ever been in discipleship group or in a community group and you could share about things, but when somebody shares and they start crying, doesn't it get a little bit heavy, a little bit more serious? Because tears are a language that communicates more powerfully. It makes the the environment somber, more serious. The mood changes. And that's what tears are in the Bible. They speak profoundly about the human experience and all the emotions that humans are built up with. And so even in counseling and conversations, when I counsel people and all of a sudden there's a pause and the person begins to tear up, then I feel like something has hit. That's the power of tears. That's what weeping shows us. That's what tears reflect back to us. They speak to our deepest soul and our hearts. Even psychologists and secularists will say that when you dream and when you tear, sometimes they express your deepest humanity in the language of tears. Henry Ward Beecher has once said this about tears. Tears are often the microscope by which we see deeply into our own souls. They reveal what we believe and what we value. And so here's the question. If that's how the Bible understands tears and what the Bible is promising and saying, you want to be restored? It says, well, it could come like the streams in the Negev, or more likely, it's going to come in this slow farming process in which you sow your tears, you plant your tears. 
So what do you do with this if tears have that profound communication ability? How do you actually understand and process your crying, your hurt, and your weeping in a legitimate, honest way so that you could hold on to the promise that one day there will be shouts of joy? And this is how you do it. Some of you think crying is an end of itself. You know, you just need a good cry. <laughs> Get the emotions out. Catharsis. And that's okay, but that's not what the Bible's talking about. Others of you think maybe that crying is for weak people and you're embarrassed and don't want to be vulnerable, so crying is for sinful people who don't have much faith in God. So you suppress your tears, and that's absolutely wrong too. So you don't want to just vent your tears. You don't want to just suppress your tears. What the farming metaphor tells us is that you want to pray your tears. You want to express your tears. You want to plant your tears. You want to sow your tears. And so how do you do this? How do you sow your tears? How do you plant your tears so that you can reap the harvest of joy? Because the metaphor is very clear. This is why it's tough sometimes in Christianity. Sometimes the clearest verses are the most difficult to apply. Literally, it's saying, plant the seed of your tears, and I promise there's going to be a flower of celebration and laughter. Every one of you would want that. This is how you plant your tears. This is what I think the psalmist is talking about. Read verse 6 again. He who goes out weeping shall come home with shouts of joy. So it tells you, you just don't weep, but there's something active about this. He who goes out weeping. I think it means at least this. It means that sometimes when we go through heartache, we become crippled, and maybe there's a moment for that. But what the psalmist is saying is that in the power of the gospel before God, you may be hurting, you may be suffering, you may be heartbroken, and you're crying in your life. But what the psalmist is saying, in the small little ways that you can, you still got to go out there and live your life by faith. You still got to sow the seed. So how do you sow your tears metaphorically? Is saying even in this heartache, you're not supposed to be crippled. You're not supposed to withdraw yourself from life. But once you're ready in the power of the gospel, you still got to do the everyday important deeds of your life. He says he goes out weeping. He doesn't stay in his house. He goes out there, and he's still sowing. He's still farming. And that's really hard, and that's really difficult. But I think the Bible is honest and say, just take it one day at a time. See, some of you may be crying right now and have cried this morning or have cried in the past week. And you're thinking, what do I do in this life? Well, you could pray your tears. God sees them. He captures every tear in a bottle, according to the psalmist. So you could pray them, express them, vent them, talk about them to God, pray about them, share with them in your community. But it also says at the end of the day, even in heartache, even in suffering, by the grace of Jesus Christ, he who goes out weeping will reap shouts of joy. So even when your marriages are difficult, even when work is very tough, even when you're going through something in a way that you feel no one sees where you are, as hard as it is, it says, go out there weeping. Don't just suppress your tears. Don't just vent your tears, but pray them, plant them, sow them. You still got to go out there. And maybe you do it as you're weeping, but you're still out there living by faith, living before God. Because he who goes out weeping shall come home with shouts of joy. Let's make it a little bit more practical, at least in your thinking. It means don't just weep, but you go out weeping. There's a way to, plant your, to sow and plant your tears and not just suppress them and vent them. And what this means for the Christian is this. 
whenever we sin and we feel like we hurt somebody and we failed and we feel bad about that and we're crying, we know that in the gospel of Jesus, we don't just tear up out of guilt, but eventually we could cry and tear up out of forgiveness. It means when you feel like you struggle with your identity and your sense of self-worth, you're not good enough, you don't measure up to people, you have a deep fear of man, it means that you just don't cry in self-pity, but you also cry with growing into an identity that God loves you and sees you. It means that even in acts of injustice that you see in this world and in your home, you don't just cry tears of anger and hatred, but you begin to cry tears of justice and mercy. It means that when life really crumbles down and you can't actually just take a break and you're weeping, if you want to sow your tears, you just don't want to suppress them and you don't want to just express them, you want to be able to sow them. It means that in moments of hopelessness, you just don't tear up and weep without any hope, but you tear up and weep full of hope because of the promises of the gospel that are there for yours in Christ Jesus. You have to grow into this. Everything that I've just said about weeping in the gospel is all there for you. Forgiveness is there for you. Justice is an instrument you're called to do. God is a God of justice. You just don't wallow in self-pity and being insecure and low self-esteem, but you actually live out your identity of being worthy in Jesus Christ. It's like when a dad gives his son, his five-year-old son, dad's t-shirt. The son wears it, and it's like a dress. But the shirt is absolutely the son's. He just has to grow up into that shirt. In the same way, we've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. We've been given the benefits of Christ. It's theirs for us, fully and completely, by virtue of our faith in him. We just have to grow into it. So that means sometimes when we weep, we don't weep just like non-Christians. We have something deeper that will get us through. We don't just cry out of people who are vindictive and vengeful and hateful, but we cry with grace and mercy in the gospel because that's what Jesus has given us in himself upon the cross. He gives us that ability to do this. So you just don't want to cry for catharsis and say, oh, I just need a good cry. And you want to just cry and wallow in self-pity and anger. You don't want to just suppress your tears as if you're a robot. And you just don't want to vent your tears as if you're an emotional wreck. You sow your tears. You plant them. You pray them with all the gospel promises and hope that are there for you. Let me end on this. It's interesting because in verse 5 and 6, there, there's a plural and there's a singular in terms of the weeping. Um, you know, verse 6 is a single person who's weeping. He goes out weeping. I think, hopefully, if I'm right about this, is that it may be pointing towards somebody who cried perfectly. He was the most godliest man, the most manliest of men, and he cried a lot, but he cried perfectly. He didn't vent them, he didn't suppress them, but he cried his tears, he sowed them, he demonstrated them. And I think that person is Jesus. So he who goes out weeping, now it could be just a regular man, any man, but I think he who goes out weeping is a representative man. This is the model man, and I think it refers to Jesus Christ. Because in Psalm 126, the people of God are either walking towards Jerusalem, it's a song of ascent, Jerusalem is their capital, is their hometown. Maybe they arrived in Jerusalem and they're living there, but in the same way, in Luke 19.41, Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. 
And then as he's about to turn the corner and he faces Jerusalem, what does Luke 19.41 tell us? He bursts into tears. You see, the Israelites in Psalm 126 are walking towards Jerusalem, and they're hurt, and they're broken, and they're crying. And the psalmist is saying, hey, this is how you actually cry your tears, how you sow your tears. And it says, ultimately, he who goes out weeping is going to be Jesus Christ. Jesus is also looking at Jerusalem as he turns the corner and faces Jerusalem, he bursts out into tears out of perfect empathy and justice and love. He's weeping because his people have rejected him. The nation he thought was lost, but he knows that in his redemptive work, in the tears that he cried for your sin, the tears that Jesus cried for your brokenness, tears that he sees of your heartache and your fracturing of relationship and your mental health and all the travesty and justice in this world, Jesus sees that and he his heart breaks, he cries, he bursts out to tears. In his life and death, death and resurrection, Jesus sows his work of redemption in tears before he has a resurrection and reaps the harvest of joy. And that's what Jesus does for you. Maybe you don't sow your tears well. That's okay, Jesus does it for you. And he says, I can train you, I can make you like that. I see you where you are. And even in the last youth retreat that I spoke at, now, if you've grown up in a Korean-American church and last retreats, you know the last retreat is always more emotional. Everyone's crying. Looking around, there's like kids, are, your, your, your children are bursting out into tears. Like, is this real? <laughs> I hope it's the gospel. I think it was. Even if it's not, and you're just processing your emotions, Jesus cried the perfect tear for you and cries in the perfect way out of a love, justice, and mercy in his heart. That's Jesus Christ for you. You know, as I said in the beginning, poetry sometimes speaks more profoundly than prose. Let me end the sermon on this. It's a song called, For Those Tears I Died. Apparently, this song, written by Stephen, Stephen Pino, healed millions of people when it was first written. And supposedly, this song gave birth to the contemporary Christian music world. I don't know about that. But this is just one verse of the song. For those tears I died. It said, you said you'd come and share all my sorrows. You said you'd be there for all my tomorrows. I came so close to sending you away. But just like you promised, you came there to stay. And I just had to pray. And Jesus said, come to the water, stand by my side. I know you are thirsty, you won't be denied. I felt every teardrop when in darkness you cried. And I strove to remind you that for those tears, I died. That's all I got for today. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God and Lord over our achievements to keep us humble, our successes, our laughter, our joy, our celebration but you are a God who is honest about life and the brokenness and fallenness and sinfulness of this world, and you are a God of our heartache and our tears and our pain and hurt. We thank you that you have crystallized that concern and heart for us, that empathy towards us. You crystallized that in the gospel of your son, Jesus, who found much rejoicing when somebody accepted him as their savior and whose heart broke because of death and sin and rejection. That's the heart of the Savior for us. Those are the tears he shed for us and died for us. So we thank you so much, Lord, for your word and for this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.